MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. That's the sound of air raid sirens going off in Tel Aviv Thursday, a stark reminder, if any was needed, that Hamas still has rockets to spare to threaten Israeli cities and towns. Israel, for its part, is pounding Gaza with artillery and airstrikes. It's civilians, of course, who are paying the price on both sides. Ukrainians have been living with air raid warnings and mass civilian casualties for 20 months now, ever since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. And today, Vladimir Putin is probably chortling over the chaos and devastation his proxy, Iran, has created in the Middle East, especially since his so-called special military operation in Ukraine has largely stalled. Meanwhile, Ukraine's intelligence and special ops agencies have grown increasingly bold in taking the war to Russia itself, with assassinations, sabotage, and drone attacks well inside their adversaries' territory, even Moscow, with, according to a recent report in the Washington Post, the somewhat jittery support of CIA bosses. In light of all that, we thought it was time to catch up on intelligence ops related to Ukraine and Russia. And to that end, we've invited back our old friend, John Seifer, a former top Russia hand at the CIA. John Seifer, welcome back to Spy Talk. Great to see you. Um, so you spent a lot of time in Moscow. You spent a lot of time in Russia. You spent a lot of time thinking about Russia, studying Russia, dealing with the Russians, combating the Russians, <laughs> KGB onward. So um, put us in the room right now in uh, Moscow Station. Um, what are folks thinking and doing? Well, I think it's got to be a frustrating time to be working in Moscow because probably the pressure on the embassy and on people in the station is such that, you know, in normal times, everybody's constantly harassed, under surveillance, followed all the time. And in a period like this, the embassy has drawn down. They pushed a lot of people out. We're probably working with a skeleton crew. Um, you know, simple things that you need to get done are, are twice as hard to do just in terms of regular life. Being able to work is obviously more difficult. We obviously have a, a group of people there who are going to meet with their Russian counterparts and the and the services. And we've always tried to find some ways to sort of communicate or, or talk together, but that's even got to be strained at best right now. So I think it's a really difficult time to be there. Well, um, let's break. Let's break down. There's a lot to unpack right there. Uh, a lot of people pushed out. You said, "Have the Russians demanded a cut in uh, in uh, embassy personnel and CIA people in particular?" Yeah, I should actually put together a number. So, over the last few years, there's been a, a, a variety, a series of kicking out intelligence officers, diplomats that we've done in the United States. They've done in Europe. They've done to us in Russia. Um, we've always had a very large embassy there. In, in many ways, because we have to do things that the Russians you know, don't help us do. So we have to have people who work with the Russians to try to find apartments, to try to find ways to get our cars taken care of, to get them brought into the country. All these kind of things 
uh, they're very difficult to do in a place like that. Hmm. Now, Russians embassies around the world have no foreigners working for them. So, for example, in a place like Russia, we have a lot of Russians that work in the embassy to help us do things like work through the bureaucracy to get apartments and pay rents and get cars um, licensed and all these type of things that take for, forever to do. And the system is set up to, to stop <laughs> Westerners from being able to do that. In other words, put it, to put it another way, that the Russians make it clear that you need to hire Russians to get these permits and logistical things taken care of. Yes, they do. And then, of course, they take advantage of that as they use them as spies inside against us. And so they can sort of pull our chain in two different ways. They can use them to spy against us and they can sort of pull them out or have them not work, which makes it harder for us to live our, our daily lives and then do our work. And then over the years as as you know spy cases or or political crises have happened between the countries we've thrown out some russians they've thrown out some americans to the point where our embassy is probably at a place where it really can't function very effectively there you know given the security pressures and their effort to sort of break into everything and break into our communications and follow us around so i think it'd be a very very tough place to work right now recruiting sure. in russia has always been hard uh, and typically, uh, we've, we, uh, CIA officers seek to meet Russians uh, outside of Russia, uh, either people who've already been recruited or people who uh, are of interest to CIA. You meet them in Buenos Aires. You meet them in, in Mali. You meet them in Israel. Um, so right. uh, has the Russians clamped down more on the embassy uh, lately uh, in terms of surveillance? What do you hear? Well, I think the, the surveillance has been heavy forever. The one thing I think that's changed since my time certainly is the technology as such. The, the, you, know, you hear stories, of, for example, in London, there's cameras everywhere now, right? So that you can essentially follow someone across mm-hmm. town and through town without ever actually having to physically follow them. You can follow them from one camera feed to the next. And I mm-hmm. think Moscow has become that way. And so it's in some ways, it's it's even tougher for us to work. We always run under just, you know, b- b- Tons of surveillance follows everywhere all the time. Sophisticated surveillance, sometimes they make it like they can't see you, but they would use multiple, multiple teams and cars and airplanes and things to try to track where you're going, dogs coming behind where you're going. But now there might not be a car behind you and you just don't know if you're being tracked by cameras so that when you get to the place where you think you're going to do your operational act, you know they may have been tracking you the whole time and then can bring in the police or the, the KGB to do their, to do their deed. So I think it's a very difficult place to work. And you're right. We tend to, to meet Russians outside the country. And if they decide to work and spy for us, we train them. And then only a small subset of them will work for us in, in country because it really is a dangerous place and a difficult mm-hmm. place to operate. Really? Do you, what do you hear about the uh, availability of Russians uh, to work for us as a result of the Ukraine invasion? Uh, and of course, uh, Putin's tight grip on power, tightening grip on power, paranoia, sort of institutionalized paranoia, which is not new to Putin, of course. Um, uh, do you hear that there are more Russians, and this is sort of serving up a fastball to you, more Russians are volunteering to spy for us uh, and the West in general because of uh, the situation in Russia? I don't hear, and that's a good thing because <laughs> the people inside shouldn't be talking about those things. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask. But you know, just to use sort of the past as prologue is, um, 
in times of crisis is probably the best time that we've had success against hard targets, whether they be Russians, Chinese, or Iranians, or what have you. Um, I can remember, for example, in the early 2000s when the Kursk submarine sank. And I don't know if you remember that. That was early days of Putin's reign. Um, You know, the Russian nuclear submarine sank uh, in the Barents Sea uh, that was mishandled by the the Russian Navy. Vladimir Putin was was late to acknowledge, wouldn't go. The, The Swedes, Norwegians, British, and others offered to help to get down there. They had, we had the capability to do so, and they pushed us mm-hmm. away. It was too secret. And, you know, hundred some Russian sailors died in the process. And I remember at the time there were Russians that we were talking to around the world in Russia who, who realized that, you know, their own government would rather see citizens die than try to cooperate with people who are trying to help. And that ended up being actually a boon for us. People who maybe had been sort of at that edge, realizing it was dangerous, they shouldn't be talking to Westerners, you know, broke and said, that's it. That's the last draw. You know, I'm going to talk to the CIA or the British service or what have you. And so we've seen that over time. And and we're at a point now where it's very clear Vladimir Putin doesn't care about Russian citizens. He, he sends them into the meat grinder. He's just sort of keeping this war going because he doesn't really have an answer of how to change it or change the situation on the ground or, or to pull out. And the economy is going the wrong way. You know, what kind of pride can you have as a Russian diplomat working around the you know, you're just told to lie constantly. And, you know, even if you're a Russian diplomat, at some point you must be like, you know, as you talk to people, it's just embarrassing to, to support this regime. Now, again, most people most people who are working there or realize it's dangerous, won't want to do it, will just keep their head down. But there's going to be a subset who, who uh, this is the breaking point, it's the last straw. And so I, I do think it's probably a good time to recruit Russians. And you also have to remember there's a ton of Russians who left the country. You know, the best and brightest who are working in tech shops, computer areas, um, areas that even if they're not in Moscow doing that anymore, had information that is really useful to us or, you know, n- know people in key positions in, you know, communications, technical fields that there's information that they have will be useful to us to help us do our job of spying on the Russians. Yeah, uh, uh, that's a good reminder that uh, right after the invasion, uh, there was a a, a rush of Russians to get out of the country. And these are people who had means to get out of the country. So, uh, of course, some of them probably uh, were recruitable uh, and usable, but uh, it would fall also to the CIA's debriefing division, the National Resources Division or whatever it's called these days, just to sit down and talk to these people and say, can you tell us uh, what's going on in semiconductors? What's going on in in oil sales? Um, what do you know about uh, internet technology and security in Russia and so on? So would you suspect that the uh, uh, National Resources Division would have been uh, full-on Interviewing, trying so to. So, National Resources Division is, is the up, is the group that operates in the United States, often cooperating with the FBI and others domestically. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they'll be busy. But I can imagine in places where a lot of Russians have gone into Turkey, into Azerbaijan, to Israel, to the Baltic states, there are going to be a lot of Russians there that are of interest to us and to our allies there for for, the, for exactly the reasons you say. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, Israel for a moment and the Russians in Israel. Mm-hmm. What's what's what do you think Putin's play is right now? You've you've studied Russia and Putin for a long time. What's going through his mind right now? How to take advantage of this morass in Israel? So I do think 
very much so they're looking for an opportunity to take advantage of this. Sure. I do not think that they were involved in in sort of choreographing this. And there, early on, there was like, oh, the Russians were probably involved in this and they knew about it and they used Hamas to try to deflect from what's happening in Ukraine. And in some ways, I think Vladimir Putin, you know, wants to be seen on the world stage as, as someone who, you know, is a, is a key player who pushes the buttons. And in some ways, they become more and more irrelevant to activities around the world like in, in things like this. So I do not think he was either aware or certainly do not believe that that the Kremlin was involved directly in, in, in this. That said- I hadn't heard that some about Russia so much as Iran. Yeah. Well, I mean, that said, they do have a good relationship with Iran. They have a relationship with Hamas. My understanding is Hamas and Iran are in Moscow today and having having discussions with, uh, with the Russians. And so- um, we're going to see what we've seen, certainly in other places, that they will use the opportunities given to them to both deflect from what's happening in Ukraine and use it to sow chaos with the, with the Americans and others. A little bit dicey for them because Putin has tried to develop a good relationship with, with Netanyahu in, in Israel. Israel has not given weapons to Ukraine. Um, Israel and Netanyahu and, and Putin have developed a, a good relationship. So it's a little difficult for for Putin, because he's had this long-term relationship with Hamas and other sort of Arab groups, and he's been trying to sort of balance these, and it's going to make it harder for him to do that. But you can already see the disinformation things that are being pushed out there. Early on, it was said how weapons that have been given to the Ukrainians, Ukraine are being used by Hamas to kill Israelis and this type of stuff. There's no evidence that that's true, but those are the kind of disinformation, you know, things are being pushed around in social media and other places that are being picked up by certain groups. And so he's going to look to to, to make as much hay as he can off of this, but I don't think he's a key player in, you know, decision-making. I don't think he'll be involved in, you know, ceasefires or any kind of work between the, the key players here. I wouldn't think there's much that, that Moscow could bring to the table right now to help the Iranians. They've got what they needed. I mean, maybe there's something where uh, some technology around the edge, communications technology, covert communications technology, I, I mean, and so on, but not much, not much more. Um, so, uh, you know, he's, he's looking for the situation to devolve. Uh, the, the, Iranian, the Israelis are going to go into Gaza. There's a great chance that they could get bogged down there. We're looking at uh, Black Hawk down moments for the Israelis. Uh, in the um, dense urban environment of, of, of Gaza, Hamas can, uh, can provide problems for the uh, Israelis. There's nothing that the Russians really need to do. They can just watch and, and hope to reap the benefits. I think that's right. Hey, we have to step away for a minute. Be back in a jiffy. Okay, I'm back with John Seifer. Uh, going back to Ukraine now. Uh, which has been sort of forced out of the news because of the events in Israel. But uh, there was a story that the Washington Post published last week saying, or early this past week, talking about CIA aid to Ukrainian special forces and intelligence. And, and as you know, as listeners know, uh, the Ukrainians have been very aggressive and attacking uh, beyond, way behind the lines in Russia. Uh, I think this is more for PR reasons uh, than any tactical advantage that they might have, uh, psychological warfare. But uh, a, a U.S. official was quoted as saying that there are concerns about CIA complicity <laughs> with the Ukrainians. How do you translate that? What does that mean? <laughs> 
I think the, I think the CIA has, has worked very closely with uh, Ukrainian military intelligence and Ukrainian civilian intelligence for a number of years, certainly after 2014. I, I can remember from my time, there was always a concern with Ukraine for fear that it was penetrated by the Russians because so many of the senior people in the service had, had been in the old KGB or worked with Russians. Um, I think you know, after what's happened after the invasion in 2014, and some of the changes, especially in the the military service, which is you know sort of cleaned house more even than the civilian service, I think CA does what it does around the world. It looks for partners. It finds ways that we can work together. That can get involved in training, uh, providing you know assistance, providing analytic help, providing uh, technology, all of these type of things. And I think that's been going on for quite some time. And so by the time the war came, I think. CIA was probably sort of the lead agency in working with the Ukrainians more than, you know, our military or others. And once the war came, obviously, the White House didn't, you know, wanted to be careful about having, you know, U.S. military directly involved. And so uh, having a covert means to provide that kind of paramilitary and, co- and uh, intelligence support is something I think has been very important to Ukraine. And, and, and those relationships have been important to us. This seems like what we learned to call during CIA assistance to the Mujahideen and in Afghanistan, an overt-covert operation. Uh, <laughs> that's no that, se- that's <laughs> fair. <laughs> certainly no secret to the Russians. That's uh, and good. they're working hard to find out uh, where the uh, uh, the nodes of contact are between the Russians and CIA. Um, what, what do you think about the Russian capabilities, by the way, of penetrating the Ukrainians at this point? And what can CIA do to help the Ukrainians keep the Russians out? What can we do? Um, there, there are lines at which CIA can't really cross. So we work with places like Israel and Britain and other places that have different capabilities, different legal structures. Um, and so, for example, we can provide a lot of assistance to the Israelis, but they do things that are illegal for us, you know, assassinations, that type of thing. And so we can provide support up to a certain point, but then don't get involved in things that, you know, would be illegal in our in our system. And so I think that's a lot of the stuff you're seeing with Ukraine now. So you see these stories about Ukraine being involved in assassinating Russians in Russia or uh, into Crimea and things like that. So I can, I'm sure that you know it's 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 a dicey. Our lawyers are trying to work with our people there to say, okay, how far can you go in providing assistance, training, advice, but not giving specific information or being involved in an, in an operation that that takes place in in Russia itself, for example. So that's like a constant thing they're going to be working on. But in terms of helping them protect themselves from the Russians. You know, I want to be careful here to act like we're the great experts on this. In some ways, the Ukrainians are probably better at this than we are. I mean, they understand, they speak the language, they understand the Russian mentality, they've been inside the Soviet Union with the Russians, they've been attacked for years and years on the cyber front. A lot of the things that we saw in the United States, disinformation, attacks on our elections, all these things, the Ukrainians saw it long before. Mm-hmm. And so I, in some ways, we've been learning as much from the Ukrainians as they've been learning from us. <laughs> I was going to say back in my war, which is Vietnam, you know, we had advisors at every level, uh, uh, intelligence, military, and so on, when as one person said to me, we were the ones that needed advisors. <laughs> so maybe that's, that's, that's true for Ukraine too. I mean, it's not like they're new to the game of nations. No, and and that's why I think intelligence support can be useful because it can be small, it can be focused, it can be sort of expert driven. I worry about, for example, as we look at what's happening in Israel, is they're talking about, you know, a land war into into Gaza, you know, lines of tanks. Um, we've just seen it in our own experience in Afghanistan and Iraq and places like this. You know, when you look at Afghanistan after 9-11, when you sent small forces of CIA and special operators into Afghanistan, 
we were having great success, essentially overthrew the Taliban in, in a space of, you know, weeks. In a heartbeat. Um, and, you know, destroy. we went in to destroy Al-Qaeda. And you can argue over the years that Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been destroyed mostly by intelligence-led special operations and intelligence-run um, operations. But when we brought in the big military into Afghanistan, people who don't speak the language that, that you know, are coming in that just don't understand the culture or anything, I think that's where in some ways it really went wrong. And so it, it became, you know, we've been at war for 20 years when, in fact, you know, by the end, we only had, you know, a few th- couple thousand American military people there providing advice. I mean, it was hardly a war, but it became a, it became a strategic blunder based on that. And the same thing in Iraq. And so... I, I, it's going to be interesting. Hamas is bigger and more powerful than Al-Qaeda and ISIS ever were. And so they're going to have to have some version, certainly, of military attack into Gaza. But, you know, like you mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast, this being caught up in a, you know, urban warfare with tanks and things in a place where the Israelis just don't have any real, you know, day-to-day experience is going to be really dangerous as opposed to sort of more focused, targeted counterterrorism kind of attacks to take out Hamas leaders. And, and and not something we want to be directly involved in. You know, we've already got mud on our faces in large parts of the world, certainly in the Islamic world, for uh, our aid packages to Israel over since 1948, you might even say, uh, and going along with or accepting or treatment of the Palestinians and the West Bank in particular, bad treatment and so on, which contributed to this issue. Um, so, uh, but getting involved uh, even more in, in Israel, I think that that's where a lot of Americans uh, rightly have concerns that we don't want to get back uh, boots on the ground in the Middle East. Is and not it benefits something. Hamas. I mean, Hamas obviously yeah. determined that the status quo wasn't working for them. The fact that Israel was starting to develop relations with Saudi Arabia and other Arab states uh, and Palestine, and the Palestinian issue was being pushed off the front pages. It was their way of sort of pushing back in and you know, war and angry Middle East is in their, and focused on Palestine, anti-Israel issues is in their interest. And for us, you know, as we work with Israel is to sort of try to avoid that, because if we get caught back up into that whole game, there's no winning that. And unfortunately, Netanyahu's not a great partner in this. You know, you can even read stories about how even inside the IDF and inside Israel, I mean, the people he's working with aren't even totally on board with with Netanyahu. I mean, he's got his own personal political interest probably at heart mm-hmm. more than he does even you know, right. What needs to be done on the ground, and so yeah, if if there's going to be a reckoning, and if this makes the entire Middle East you know sort of up in arms again, this is not in, in the United States interest for sure. Yeah, I mean the Israeli establishment, uh, which has been hostile to Netanyahu for some time because of the extremists he brought into his coalition. I mean, there were IDF uh, leaders uh, and and Mossad people on the streets protesting against that's Netanyahu right. not too long ago. Uh, and maybe that's going to be tamped down for the moment because they've got this emergency on their hands. But I could see a time where they just say, you're hurting us more than you're helping us. you got to leave. Uh, and we're going to put together a real national unity government that doesn't include you. And if you have to go to jail because of it, well, that's the way the dice rolls. Yeah, I talked to some friends who've been involved more directly in Israel lately, and they said, you know, Lita, if you're talking just weeks before this this attack from Hamas, what was the focus of the Israeli national security establishment? The biggest concern, the thing they were focused on, is potential civil war inside Israel. There was the, the political situation was so fraught and so dangerous 
that Hamas was sort of way down the way down the list in terms of things that they were really worried about. And yeah. so obviously this Hamas it changes sort of the changes many things for them, but it doesn't fix that earlier problem of internal political um, frictions inside Israel. Right. Now, going back to Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, you're always my go-to guy in Russia because you're <laughs> so seeped in it. You know, you're almost half Russian. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know them so well. Um, what we have looming now, because of the radicals who are in control of the Republican Party now, uh, what we're facing is a cutoff of aid to Ukraine. Um, that could happen. Yes. Uh, I, I noticed that the U.S. put out, I think it was State Department put out a, uh, a notice today that $150 million worth of aid, arms and equipment uh, are on their way to Ukraine. But that, that faucet could be turned off by the Republicans. Uh, so how does that affect the intelligence operation? And it's not uh, in the larger scheme of things, CIA operations are, are cheap. They're, they're, they're nothing compared to military uh, weaponry and personnel and so on. So if there were a cutoff of aid, what 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 happens with intelligence operations? Does it affect intelligence operations? Um, again, I don't have you know direct insight, but in the past when I've seen this kind of thing, when the politics gets heated, um, the fact that, that what the CIA does is secret allows you know saner heads to sort of come together. So r- rarely have I seen... When we see stuff in the papers that look like this, has it affected what's what the CIA is up to in terms of its work overseas? And so I I, I tend to suspect that, you know, the firebrands on the right who are sort of pushing this kind of stuff, there's no benefit for them to actually go in and cut things that no that you know nobody sees, and so they can't act like they're <laughs> to go to their constituents and say they're doing these wonderful things. So you I can't suspect bra- can't yeah. brag about cutting CIA operations. Well, yeah, against Russia. exactly. And so, and I, so I do think this is an intelligence-led war. I think, I think, you know, a couple things we know for sure is, is, is Ukraine will not stop fighting. This is existential for them. You know, if they stop fighting, that's the end of of Ukraine. So they'll keep fighting. It will be awful. It'll be more bloody. It'll be longer and more dangerous if U.S. funding gets cut. I do think the the Europeans will step up some in that case. But I also, you know, probably like you too, is I just don't understand it. Like this is like a no nothing party thing. Like this seems to be, you know, clearly in the United States interest to, you know, fight off someone who's invading a European country in the 21st century, you know, committing these horrible crimes uh, and, and, and sends a signal to places like China that we're not serious, that we can't keep up our obligations. Uh, you know, the same party that is upset that we pulled out of Afghanistan um, and thinks that hurt us on the thing is now saying we should, you know, essentially give up Ukraine. And if, if they think that doesn't send a signal of a weak America to a place like China, I think they're, they're crazy. So I don't understand. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost simple. It's, it's, it's a Trump personal thing and therefore they're just going to follow along. And yeah, it seems to me much more, it doesn't have anything to do with Ukraine actually. Yeah. And the geopolitics of Ukraine and, and Russia, it has to do with domestic posturing, politicking, probably half these uh, uh, crazies, you know, to take a page from Mike Pompeo, I think if you took uh, uh, Bobert and uh, some of these other uh, hair on fire radicals and gave a blank map to them and said, 
find <laughs> Ukraine. Uh, I, I doubt if they, they could find it even on the map. And what a turnabout from the Reagan years. And actually, we, uh, you know, post-World War II Republican Party was always uh, more aggressive than the Democrats, you might say. I mean, you could, you could make an argument of that. Yeah, they, they uh, prided themselves in their security and a strong national defense and these type of things. Hmm. Yeah, this is why, that's why it's hard to call this group conservative. I mean, we're in a point where it's not, you know, we're seeing this in the, in what's happening in the, in the Congress in terms of trying to find a speaker. You know, it's, it's hard to label these, these groups of people, even inside the Republican coalition. Would you find uh, people in the CIA leadership who uh, would be against uh, getting more deeply involved with the Ukrainians? I, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. It's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the Trump phenomenon changed a lot of things. And so I would have thought that, you know, it would have, we would have been hard pressed to find, say, Trump supporters inside the State Department or CIA. But I do know some people, senior people who tended to be, you know, almost sort of go that direction. But I, even of those people that I know, this is a, you know, obviously a small group um, who became sort of more towards the Trump phenomenon, still were very much anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine. Anti-Russia. Like, in other words, the Nash, the, their interest in national security and the issues you know, were, were pretty set, even though domestically they might get worked up on things that are in the news and what have you. And I would suspect, <laughs> I mean, given the DNA and so on, that that Russia House or uh, the Ukraine Task Force or whatever are pretty damn excited right now about the Ukrainians taking it to the Russians. And, and, uh, and, and, and I can see the general counsel at CIA say, don't write anything down <laughs> about these operations they're doing. If you find out that they're going to do an assassination in Moscow, don't write it down. We, we, don't, <laughs> we, we don't want that on our record, but that there is a kind of an excitement uh, to be back in sort of OSS style, uh, when there's so many weird things about this ground war in, in Europe. And I think wasn't um, it George Orwell that wrote something about you know the the worst thing about socialists socialism is socialists or whatever. And so anyone who's worked in Russia and seen that and and ha- understands that history of of the Kremlin and the and the state within a state that which is the KGB and and the nastiness and bloodthirstiness and stuff of that, you know, disp- no matter what kind of craziness goes on in our politics. We understand just how awful that is and um, and understand that it needs to be battled. And so seeing the Ukrainians defending themselves is something I think is, is, is very righteous for people who've been involved in their security. Yeah. Um, and uh, we don't yet know how it's going to turn out, but we're going to be involved there one degree or another for many years to come. And we just hope, I think, personally speaking, I just think Biden has... Uh, there's room for criticism, but Biden has handled it very well vis-a-vis the Russians, you know, cranking up each escalation, seeing how they react, and then cranking it up again. I know there's a school of thinking saying we should we should have been much heavier in with the Ukrainians uh, faster. I tend to bigger. be of that school, but I understand, what, you know, I, I get when you're when it's your decision and you worry about issues of war and peace, but that, you know, we couldn't. Yeah, escal- when they're threatening. But on, but on the other hand, you know, those of us who've been arguing for more is, you know, this has always been Putin's game is the bluff and the threat. He's always over threatened and to, to make us back down. And at this point, it's hard to imagine, you know, they've threatened, you know, oh, what if, if Sweden and Finland come in, they're going to do this. And if we use this thing, they're going to do that. If we attack Crimea, this is and, and they don't have the capability to do the things that we worry about. And so. You know, I mean, I, well, yes, I think, they, I think they, they've done a good job, too. When they put when the Russians put nuclear weapons on the table, uh, you definitely got to stop and think about it, because that we're talking about end of life 
uh, conflict mm-hmm. at that point. So anyway, we're going to leave it there. Uh, it's always great to talk to you, John Cipher, about Russia. It's, I always learn something. <laughs> Thanks no, a lot. it's great to talk to you. I, I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast and your, other, your writing and other work. So thank you so much. Thank you, John. See you around. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do check out the spytalk.co news site on Substack, where I and a deep bunch of contributing editors offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses. Just Google Spy Talk or, hey, use AI and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast was smoothly produced and edited by Molly Hawkey for MSW Media. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.